Perhaps you remember the name Seabiscuit. He was the remarkable racehorse who became the top money winner of the 1930s. You guys remember the 1930s, right? Seabiscuit <laughs> upset champions. He won the hearts of the country and the world. He was voted American Horse of the Year in 1938. He may be in the Racing Hall of Fame, but he really didn't have a very good start to things. He didn't win any of his first 17 races and only a quarter of his first 40. And horses like that, it's not like they're racing every weekend. Early on, he was seen as lazy and lethargic. He became something of a laughingstock around the stables, but then Seabiscuit was given a new trainer, one with unorthodox methods and a better understanding of the animal. Under his care, Seabiscuit won 11 out of 15 races in a single year, and his fame began to spread. It wasn't all smooth sailing, he suffered a major setback in his career when he fell and was seriously injured in 1938. But with faithful attention, his trainer brought him back to health and speed, and Seabiscuit famously won the 100 grander at Santa Anita in 1940, setting a track record in that final race of his. Even more remarkable is the fact that Seabiscuit was seen as a small horse for a racehorse, and things that I don't understand about horses were wrong about him, haunches and leg length and all kinds of stuff. So people said he'd never be a champion. Well, tonight we begin a study of a man whose story has some very Seabiscuit-like elements, a man who became famous throughout the world. In fact, it's not going too far to say that Abraham, who is the subject we'll be studying for a while now, he is one of the most famous people in all of human history. But if you knew him at the beginning, you'd never have guessed that he'd make it into any hall of fame. He not only had some significant setbacks in his spiritual career, which we'll go through as we move through Genesis, we find here that he had a pretty rough start as far as the race of faith goes. And yet, we're told that this man, though he was as good as dead, became the father of the faith, the friend of God, and the human fount from which all the world is blessed. How did it happen? It happened like with Seabiscuit because someone came in from the outside and took charge of the situation. Not just a trainer or a jockey, but God himself came into Abraham's life. And his story is a demonstration of what God is able to do. It's not a story of man's greatness. It's not a story of man's achievement. It's not a story of, you know, how faithful a person can be. Abraham's example for us shows us again and again how weak we are as human beings, how greatly we need God and his intervention and in our lives. Instead, Abraham's life is an example of the truth given to us in Philippians 1, where we read, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And though we too have many sputtering starts and falterings along the way, God will not give up on us. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. And in the end, he will present us complete, victorious champions, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done. And so let's see the beginning of this amazing relationship, picking up in verse 27 of chapter 11. These are the family records of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans during his father Terah's lifetime. This is about 2,000 years into human history, 
from our reading, 2,000 years from creation to Abraham. And it's about 2,000 years before Jesus' birth. Terah and his family live in a city called Ur. It's a Sumerian city in Mesopotamia from the region that we talked about last time uh, where we are familiar with the, the region of Babylon, Babylonia. Was Abram an idol worshiper? There's a lot of disagreement among scholars because that's what scholars do. As usual, there's a spectrum of opinion. There are those which say that Abram was most definitely a worshiper of the moon god. In fact, in the book of Joshua, we are told explicitly that his father was for sure a idol worshiper. You can read about that in Joshua chapter 24. And then all the way over on the other side of the spectrum, there are those who suggest that Abram was a staunch monotheist believer even before God spoke to him in the Genesis account. Maybe you've heard of the Talmud or the Mishnah. Those are terms that come up from time to time when you are studying the Bible. They are a collection of the oral traditions of Judaism. So you had the Torah, the, the law of Moses, the written words, the, the law, the prophets, the writings, right? Written down and transmitted among God's people, which we call the Old Testament. And then you also had all of these oral traditions. Uh, Pharisees were really into the oral traditions. And they were passed down by word of mouth from person to person and from year to year and generation to generation until finally they said, well, we should probably compile these things and write them down so that we don't lose them. And so they were collected and compiled, this group of oral traditions, in the first couple centuries AD. Now, they're not scripture. We don't recognize them as inspired. We don't think that they contain the truth of God the way that the Old Testament does. Now, the Mishnah, though, is very important, or the Talmud, the Mishnah, they're very important in uh, certain groups of Judaism. And certainly in previous times, in previous histories, is very important. They talked a lot about the Mishnah, Mishnah, talked a lot about the Talmud. Now, the Mishnah teaches that Abram actually spent 39 years growing up in the homes of Noah and Shem. It teaches that he boldly contended against idolatry in his father's own idol shop. It teaches his father was an idol maker and that Abraham was supposed to be a salesman, but instead of selling the idols, anytime people would come in, he would use apologetics and logic to keep them from being idol worshipers and preach monotheism. The Mishnah teaches that Abram stood up against wicked King Nimrod. Remember him from a couple passages ago? And that at one point, he's brought before Nimrod as this, you know, unbeliever in the many gods of Babylon. And that Abram and Nimrod have this sort of battle of wits and battle of philosophy, which led to Abram being thrown into a fiery furnace, but he was miraculously preserved and came out unharmed like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's all in the Mishnah. Of course, nothing like that is found in the word of God, not even a little bit. And what we find is that, well, we'll get into it here at the end, but we're not really told any details about Abram's early life or his behavior at all until we find him here. And here we find him, a grown man, married, living with his extended family all together in a city called Ur. Ur was famous for moon worship. While there, Abram's brother Haran died. We're not told why. The Mishnah has its own opinions, but we're not told. And it does seem that Abram will sort of adopt his nephew Lot. He will have a great care and affection for him, and, and he'll be looking out for him in lots of different ways in the Genesis account. 
Verse 29, Abram and Nahor took wives. Abram's wife was named Sarai and Nahor's wife was named Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. So this was a tight-knit family, if we can get over the heebie-jeebies of people marrying their relatives. We've talked about this before, you know, when it came to the early, early uh, inhabitants of earth, the, the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve obviously had to marry one another. But what are we seeing here? We're seeing a very tight-knit family. Abraham marries his half-sister. Nahor marries his niece. They're all living together. They're making decisions together. They communicate with one another. Abraham keeps Lot under his umbrella after uh, Abram's uh, brother dies. And by the way, I, I really tried to tell myself, don't go back and forth between Abram and Abraham, and I failed abysmally. So Abram and Abraham, as most of you know, are the same person. His name, his given name was Abram, and then God is going to change his name to Abraham. Forgive me. I really thought I was going to lick that problem, but I was wrong. So the problem is that this family is steeped in idol worship. They're idol worshipers. And we have no indication that Abram believed in the one true God yet, that he was a monotheist. In fact, all of the indications are to the contrary. Now, the Bible is silent specifically on what Abram thought or some of his behavior. And so given the context and given his walk of faith, we have to make some speculations. But there is no reason for us to think that Abram was somehow a faithful believer yet. Verse 30, Sarai was unable to conceive. She did not have a child. We know the rest of the story, but let's try to not fill it in quite yet in our minds as much as possible. We'll learn later in Genesis that Milcah, the sister-in-law, gave birth to eight sons, pretty big. But there, year after year, decade after decade, is Aunt Sarai, and she was unable uh, not only to have sons, but to have any children at all. And most of you know that in this time, it was very significant if you were unable to bear a son, even more significant if you were unable to bear any children whatsoever. There was a huge stigma. There was a huge shame. There was a huge cultural problem associated with you if uh, this was happening in your life. Now, God had said from the beginning, way back in Genesis 3, that his plan to restore the world would come through human offspring. And we'll find out in a moment that he has chosen Abram and Sarai as the conduits of that plan. And so as readers being told here that Sarai was unable to conceive should be startling. Now, this is a theme that comes up lots of different times in the Bible, right? Uh, the person having an inability to conceive and then God stepping in and doing something wonderful for them. It, it's, a, it's a subplot. It's a theme that pops up from time to time, not just with Abram and Sarai, but even with some of their kids. And then later on in the Old Testament and other times as well, right? We think of Hannah, we think of these different people. And so it's a theme that comes up, but we need to be startled by this as readers because we are following the, the revelation of God through Genesis, and he says, okay, I'm not going to accomplish the redemption of the world through ramparts or through towers or through cities or through empires. I'm going to do so 
through the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, I'm going to bring a deliverer. And we can see that God is whittling things down to a very particular line of people as we've seen the difference between uh, Cain and Seth. And we've seen the difference between Noah and the people around him. And we've seen the difference between Noah's sons. And we see this, this winnowing process and this, this, this narrowing process. And so now as we're reading, we see, okay, we're getting down to it. We're getting down to Abraham and Sarai, and God is about to do something significant and dramatic and take a big step in his plan to redeem the world, and she can't have children. This is a problem. It seems like this is game over for God's plan. His effort has been bottlenecked down from Seth through Noah, then Shem, now to this one man and his wife, and now we're at the end of the line. There's nobody after him, and he's an old man. He's like 70, 75 years old. As Bruce Waltke points out, barrenness in this context and in this time period meant hopelessness. It meant that they had no future. And we're gonna see times where Abraham says to God, hey, what's gonna happen here? I don't, I don't have an heir. This is a problem. Our future is gonna die with me. Why would God allow this difficult and unfair circumstance? By the way, I'm not saying that Abraham was an old man because he was 75. The Bible says that. It says he's an old man as good as dead. Strike two for me. All right. You know, I thought the Abram, Abraham thing, I gave up on that, but I thought that's okay. Anyway. So why would God allow this unfair, painful circumstance? This is a question that all of us have asked in our hearts at some point or another. This is the question that gets asked about God, against God, multiplied thousands of times per day. Why would God allow something like that? Something uncomfortable, something full of suffering, something that seems unfair, seems not right. Why would God allow it? In that same big extended family, you have Milka. She gets eight sons and who knows how many daughters. Sarai gets none? Isn't God the creator in, in charge of helping that happen? If his whole plan was to give them offspring so that the world might be saved, why permit these long years and decades of disappointment and suffering? Lots of reasons. And just as a, a, a personal encouragement to you as a Christian, in your personal study, allow the Lord to develop in you a strong theology of suffering because the world is full of suffering and your life is going to be full of suffering. Now, we don't look for suffering or embrace it as if it is a good thing, but the reality of life is that our lives are full of difficult trouble and suffering on one level or another. And when Christians don't have a good theology of suffering, it's a real problem, not only for your own personal experience and your own walk with the Lord, but it's a real problem when the world around you who doesn't know Jesus, who isn't born again, they look at you and they see that if your life is wrecked by suffering, then it reinforces this lie that they think that, well, there can't be a God since there is suffering. And so we talk a lot about suffering here at Calvary Hanford. You know why? Because people are suffering. And because God says we shouldn't think it a strange thing when we suffer. And so why, though, would, would God allow this? Well, there are at least two reasons that we have time for tonight. First, God wants the world to know that it's all him. He is the one 
who accomplishes deliverance. Not us, not you, not me. When God does something great in the world, it's him that's doing it. Now, he loves to use human vessels. He loves to use people like you and I to accomplish amazing, eternal, wonderful, life-changing things. But it's not your strength. It's not my strength. God does not need my ingenuity. I don't have ingenuity in comparison to God, right? What a silly thing to think that we have any strength to add to the effort of God Almighty. Well, I'm gonna add on a little bit on top of that. I'm the cherry on the top. No, you're like, a, you're not anything. I'm not anything in comparison to what God is doing. And particularly in his work of saving, he wants to demonstrate that, hey, this is all my idea. This is all me. He's leading the charge. He's leading the effort. He's accomplishing it when it can't be accomplished any other way. He says, yeah, I'll do it. I'll move heaven and earth. I'll stop the sun in the sky if I need to. I will do the impossible. I, eternal God, will put on flesh and live and come and live and die and rise again. I'll do all of these impossible things because it's all me accomplishing those things. And so as he is bringing the deliverer through the line of Shem, through the line of Abraham, first he wants us to understand that it is all him. And then second, there is a devotional principle for us tonight. Your hope... Your future is dependent on God's grace. Now, we are able, because we live in a time of great freedom and great affluence and great ability to move around in the world with great technology and opportunities and all these things, it is very easy for us to think that we can take charge of our own lives, that we can make the decisions that are going to lead to life and lead to spiritual blessing and lead to good things. But the examples of scripture show very clearly that even if you're in a time of peace and even if you're in a time of wealth and opportunity and all of that, your only hope is God's grace. Because when you go your way, when I go my way, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. That's not just true of bad people outside of God's kingdom, bad people outside of the church. That's true of all of us. And we see in examples like Abraham that when they say, okay, everything's fine. Hey, Lord, how about I take the wheel for a little bit? How about I take the reins for a little bit? I, there's a, a, a sweet detour I wanna take. The world's biggest ball of yarn over here in Egypt, it's gonna be great. And they just crater out into a ditch and cause all kinds of problems for themselves and for others. And so one of the things we need to learn from Abraham is that our hope, our future is dependent on God's grace. Luckily, God is a God of grace. He loves to pour out grace. His grace changes everything. While the world was filled with people going their own way and building their cities and their empires and making their own plans and living their own lives according to their own design, ultimately they only found ruin. But there God comes along and he draws out this man and his wife to do something amazing and to be an example to all of us that all of our hope is found in God alone, that he is able to do something greater with our lives than we could ever design or measure. And the mistake we make is when we think, oh, great, Lord, I love your design, and then I have an add-on that I'd like to put on myself as well. I took your blueprints and I, I adjusted them a little bit because this would be really great. Anytime people do that in the Bible with their lives, it's disaster. And we're given these examples so that we might learn from them. Verse 31, 
Terah took his son, Abram, his grandson, Lot, Haran's son, and his daughter-in-law, Sarai, his son, Abram's wife, and they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. Not super helpful that the place and the son are named the same thing, Haran and Haran. Smart people tell me that in Hebrew, these are different words spelled differently. They just come to us as Haran. So don't be confused. Why did Terah decide to go? We don't know. We're not told. What we are told is that though they set out with the intention of stopping in Canaan, right? That was the plan. But what did they do? They stopped in this other place called Haran. It's about halfway from where they were going to where they wanted to go. And you know, Haran was another city full of moon worshipers, archaeology tells us. Verse, 12, uh, verse 1 of chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. If we want to have a proper understanding of Abram, it's important that we let the Bible comment on itself. You see, later in the book of Acts, Stephen, the first martyr of the church, the deacon, he explains that Abram did not receive this call from God in Haran. That's kind of the impression we get as we're just reading it through. Oh, they moved, they were heading their way to Canaan, and then God talked to them when he was in Haran. But we're told in the book of Acts that that's not what happened at all. Stephen explains under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God gave Abram this message back in Ur of the Chaldeans. And this changes things significantly. It means that God spoke to Abram, giving him this very clear command, but Abram did not obey. Not really, at least, or not fully. In fact, if I'm, by my count, he obeyed one half of one third of God's commands. It doesn't sound good when you say it like that. He didn't leave his father's house. He didn't leave his relatives. He did go from the land, not to the place God was showing him, but to somewhere else, just like her of the Chaldeans. And so he, by my count, obeys one half of one third of God's commands. We don't know how much Abram had told his family, but it seems like they had some sort of meeting and he said, well, this God has revealed himself to me, and so I think we're going to head towards Canaan. Otherwise, why would they be pointing that way? And they all decided as a family to go together, but that is not what God had said. It is not what God had asked. Let's not miss a few important principles. First, we shouldn't take for granted the fact that we serve a God who speaks. Our God speaks. He speaks very clearly about who he is and what he loves and what he dislikes and what he wants for you and how he wants to bless your life and how he wants you to grow as his child, he speaks. I'd say the, the idol that most people in the world today worship, or at least in the West, is money. Money doesn't talk. They say money talks, but it doesn't. It, it doesn't tell you what to do. It doesn't tell you uh, you know, how you should invest to be sure that you'll get more money because that's the goal, right? To ever increase the, the God of money. Money doesn't love you. It's a very silent and very cruel master, but our God speaks. Now, we also see here that God is a God of just fantastic grace. Listen, 
Some of you are supervisors over employees. Some of you are parents. All of you have been in a situation where maybe you've had to tell some, someone something they're supposed to do, right? It's not too hard for us to put ourselves in that kind of situation. If you had a subordinate who only obeyed one half of one third of what you asked them to do, how frustrated would you be? And imagine that the thing you're asking them to do was necessary to save their life and the lives of countless other people. And they're like, mm, I'm gonna do one half of one third of what you asked me to do. But God doesn't just throw up his hands and give up in frustration. No, he is a God of incredible grace. But third, we should consider just how detrimental our failure to obey God really is. Listen, we're not perfect. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of, of, of obeying God the way that we should. No one's saying that we're gonna be perfect on this side of eternity. But we shouldn't take that lightly. And we shouldn't just say, yeah, God's, God's full of grace, so who really cares? I'll sin, that grace might abound. Paul said, hey, that's a, that's a really bad way to think. It is really detrimental when we fail to obey not only for us, but for the world at large. Abram spent years in Haran. That might not seem like a big deal, but those were years that put off God's work of deliverance. We talk about this from time to time. It's clear that God is sovereign and that what he wills is going to happen. It's clear that God is in charge, but it's also clear in the Bible that God at certain points allows people to tinker with the timing of the work that gets done. Two examples. Well, this is one. Those years that Abram waited around in Haran, those were years that pushed off the date of entrance into the promised land and therefore pushed off the date of the coming of the Messiah, logic would dictate. But let's think about this a different way. Two other examples of how God in his providence and in his sovereign power allows human beings to interact with that work. The children of Israel were told, why don't you go into the land right now? They said, nah, pass. And he said, all right, I guess we'll all just walk around for 40 years. Those are 40 real years that God had said, I want you, this group of people, to go into the promised land right now to accomplish the work that I've given you to do and receive the blessing that I have for you. And they said, no. And he said, okay, then. If you, if you have come to the conclusion that, well, God forced them to say no, that's, that's just not what the Bible says. But more importantly, for our purposes, Peter says that we can hasten the coming of the Lord. That's like a mind bender. And so God is sovereign and he is working his providence. And it's not that we are in control or we are going to derail the accomplishment of God's work, but God says, I'm allowing you guys to sometimes put your thumbs on the scale of the timing of these works that I'm doing. And how that's all accomplished, we are too finite to understand, but it seems to be true. So Abram spent years in Haran. We have this clear speaking, gracious God coming and saying, okay, I'm gonna send the Messiah through you and I'm going to do so in connection with a very specific land that I want you to get into so your offspring can be in there. And Abram's response, his heart response is, yeah, at some point I might get around to that maybe. 
And it's silly, and we think, come on, man, just get into Canaan. But this is the example given to us so that we can recognize that same propensity within our own heart to say, well, Lord, I know the Lord has said this in his word, which is just as much revelation to us as God speaking to Abram in Ur of the Chaldees. But we need to see this propensity prone to wander and recognize that and realize, okay, that's not what I want to do. I don't want to put off the work of God. I don't want to put off the things that God wants to do in my life or through my life. I want to just obey and obey all the way. Now, God's mercy is great, and we're not going to obey perfectly, but we shouldn't settle for slow or partial obedience. The examples of Scripture, like Abraham, demonstrate the far-reaching consequences of failing to obey God. Sometimes it just slows down the progress of spiritual fruit in our lives. That's bad enough. That's a problem. We shouldn't be like, oh, who cares about that? That's bad. But sometimes our failure to obey God leads to much bigger problems. Sometimes they lead to consequences like Ishmael. Abram's failure to obey God is gonna lead to Ishmael. And that is a consequence whose deadly ramifications have been playing out for thousands of years on a global scale up to and continuing today doesn't mean that everything Ishmael did is bad or that every descendant of Ishmael has done is bad, but there's wars fought because of the fact that Abram decided not to obey God for thousands of years. And so this is all recorded, not for Abram to be shamed or for us to turn up our nose at him, but to show us how to avoid the kinds of mistakes that he made. When God spoke to Abram, he didn't give him a lot of information. He effectively said, follow me and come and see what I wanna do in your life. And that is, of course, the call that we receive at first, to follow God, not just to believe that God exists and not just to say we're sorry for the wrong things we've done, but to take those two ideas, believing in God and repenting of our sins, and then to actually follow after him in faith and obedience. Now, as far as starts go, Abram's isn't amazing, but that's not to say that he was totally blowing it. He did believe. He had saving faith. It was accounted for him for righteousness. The New Testament explains that he really had no idea where he was going, but he went anyway. His problem was that he was being selective in which parts of God's word he was obeying at the time. For years, he stayed with his family under the direction of his father, Terah, but God was calling him out of that. God had come to him and said, you need to understand that now I'm your father. I'm the decider for your life. I'm the one who will provide for you and shelter you. He says as much in verses two and three, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. So God gives five I will statements here. In these promises, we get a hint as to whether the Mishnah is right about Abram. Is it true, all of his exploits that it talks about? Well, first off, if it was true that Abram was this staunch, fearless monotheist who was willing to die not, you know, for his belief, why would he not have fully obeyed God when he, you know, appeared to him and spoke to him? Why would he have only obeyed one half of one third of what this God had said when five minutes ago he was ready to burn alive for the one true God? But also, if the story of Nimrod and the fiery furnace were true at all, then Abram's name would already be great. He'd be famous throughout the world, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So I'm gonna go on record as saying we can write that clean off. 
All right. Now, we notice that in these promises, God doesn't only plan to do his own thing. He's not just taking advantage of Abram like a parasite. No, not at all. He also intends to interact with Abram on a daily basis, giving him help and direction and protection and a future. That doesn't mean Abram wouldn't face struggles. He would. People would curse him and treat him with contempt. They would come against him. He'd have difficulties and temptations and trials. But God assures Abram that he would be with him day by day. Verse four, so Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. Hold there. After stumbling out of the gate, Abram is on his way. So now he's obeying two thirds of God's commands. He still has Lot with him, so he has his relatives with him. That's a little bit of a problem, but it is possible that he considered Lot not, no longer to just be an extended relative, but an adopted son. It's also possible from the phrasing here that Lot decided to tag along without being asked and Abraham allowed it. Either way, we'll see that in the end, God wanted Abram completely out from this family. He was to be set apart from them, set apart from the world. Now, it's interesting to me, with Noah, God was going to take the world and its influence away from his people. He put them on an ark and then he swept the world away. But here, instead of taking the world away, he takes his people away from the influence of the world. And he told Abram, listen, follow me out from your culture, out from the influence of this unbelieving world, out from your pagan family, and we're gonna go to a new place together. And that place is gonna be full of worldlings, for sure. You're gonna be rubbing elbows with them still, but you and I are gonna have our own special relationships set apart from the rest. And in that relationship, I'm gonna show you where to go. I'm gonna explain to you what the truth is. I'm gonna give you an entire life to lead. You're gonna be set out apart from the world. The New Testament calls us to this sort of separation, of course. It says, don't be polluted by worldly idolatry. Don't love the world or the things of this world. It says, friendship with the world is hostility towards God because we have been called out and set apart for holiness and for specific godly purposes. In verse five, we're told Abram took people they had acquired. So did Abram own slaves? He undoubtedly had household servants, but there is an interesting thought here some scholars suggest that this was actually referring to a group of people that Abram may have proselytized during his time in Haran. It's not outside the realm of possibilities, and it drives home another important spiritual devotional principle for us. Even though we fall short of obeying God perfectly, and even though we fall short of obeying God to the utmost, God still is so gracious that he can still use our lives as a testimony in the meantime, and so that others can come to know him even through our imperfect service. Abram is such a great example of this. Though he followed God imperfectly, especially in the beginning, look at what God can do with mustard seed faith. He's a God who uses ordinary, imperfect people living ordinary lives to proclaim the extraordinary magnificence of the gospel. And so what God is looking for is for you to just give him your heart and to obey and to say, Lord, I'll, I'll walk with you by faith. I don't know all that you want me to do. Yes, we're going to fall short. We shouldn't just be fine with that, but we shouldn't say, well, since I can't follow God perfectly, I guess I can't do anything. Abram is the example of why all of those things aren't true. 
Verse five continues, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the site of Shechem at the Oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Abram will build at least four altars in his walk with God. This one being built under an oak tree indicates that he was still carrying over some of his cultural background in his relationship with God. That's how pagans made altars at the time. But as he obeys, we see that God is able to reveal more to him and give him a greater understanding, a growing wisdom. Here we see that no longer is the land of promise just some vague land I will show you, but God now is able to say, hey, it's this land, the one you're in. This is the one. More importantly, God goes on record saying that Abram will have offspring of his own. This seems impossible. And we'll find that Abram has a hard time grasping it, just like the disciples had a hard time understanding that the Christ had to suffer and die and rise again. And that's okay. God doesn't demand perfect understanding from us. He doesn't even demand perfect obedience. And that's good because otherwise none of us could serve him. What he wants is a living faith. He wants us to believe him and in doing so, allow him to direct and develop us and that we obey him as he speaks and as he leads. And Abram shows us how quickly God can reveal himself and move in our lives when we choose to obey God's word. Verse eight, from there he moved to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. He built an altar to the Lord there and he called on the name of the Lord. We see Abram growing and developing. He's following after God. He calls him by name. He builds another altar. Altars in this period had a lot of significance. First, they showed uh, that the builder needed cleansing. Abram knows he's not on equal level with God, but that he's guilty before him. But altars were also places of worship where a person could physically thank God and honor him and give generously to him for who he is and what he's done. These are all aspects of what our worship should be today. In Hebrews 13, the writer talks about the altar we now have, not under the Old Testament system, but in the new covenant established by Christ. And we read, therefore, through Christ, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Verse nine, then Abram journeyed by stages to the Negev. Why did he journey around instead of just camping at Shechem or Bethel? Well, on a practical level, he had herds that needed to graze and the Lord had a lot to show him. And so lots of moving around. As we close, let's consider a few ways to take this example and apply it to our own faith. First, it's not always an easy thing to obey God. Abram had to separate. He also had to downgrade his living situation. He was still rich in possessions and herds, sure, but Ur was a very advanced city at the time. Archaeologists have discovered that maybe half the houses in the city had indoor toilets at that time. The city had a library. It was a place of advanced development and culture. God asked Abram to leave that all behind, and he asked us to leave things behind too. It might look like Ur. It might look like fishing nets in a boat. It might look like a tax booth. Seeing Abram's story, we can be sure that whatever God asks us to leave behind, it's worth the cost because he has something truly irreplaceable planned for us. And a second way to apply this is to remember that like Abram, God wants us to be blessed, to be a blessing and to do a great work in our lives. What sort of blessing does God want us to experience? 
the blessing of his presence, the blessing of Christian fellowship, the blessing of contentment and peace and satisfaction found in living a righteous life. How are we meant to bless the world around us? By being proclaimers of the gospel and agents of grace, by being a source of hope and light and wisdom to a world that is trapped in destructive ideologies. And what kind of greatness does God want for us? Well, how does the Bible define greatness? Not the way the world does, that's for sure. No, the Lord wants our greatness to be in compassion, in mercy, in humility, in purity, in meekness, in worship, in generosity, in endurance. These and more are ours to enjoy and to produce in our lives as we walk with God in faith. Not perfectly, but progressively following the Lord with our hearts for the rest of our lives, trusting him, obeying him, and building altars of praise of our own in our hearts along the way.